Sanity out. This is crypto sanity. Sanity. Hello, this is Crypto Sanity, and welcome to the first episode of our new series, Crypto Gold Rush. The premise of Crypto Gold Rush is simple: that cryptocurrency will usher in the greatest wealth transfer in human history, and we are still early very early in the game. But it's going to be far from a smooth ride, for the easiest gains are already gone. If this assumption is correct, then you, my dear listener, are in a perfect position to meet your financial goals, no matter what they may be, as long as you don't get crushed in the process. In this series, we will go in-depth into every aspect you need to succeed. But be warned, this is not your typical crypto podcast. We'll explore history, sociology, transcendence, and more. Basically everything but the crypto market most of the time. And yet crypto will always remain our touchstone. I promise. Why are we taking this approach? Because it's our goal to help you become wealthy, not just rich. And yes, there is a big difference. For one can measure riches by the size of their bank account, but wealth is something much more. Wealth is the ability to be genuinely secure, creative, and powerful in your life. It is to be an author of your life, not a mere captive to the vagaries of history. So yes, we'll help you get rich, but an astonishing number of the rich remain poor in spirit. This won't do. It won't do at all, for the world needs genuine wealth more than ever. And with that, I'd like to introduce my co-host, my new but dear friend, Captain Randallwall. Captain, why don't you take it from here? Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for that fantastic introduction, Crypto. I um, So just to give a little introduction of myself, too, on, on this podcast, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, I suppose, in terms of my background, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur in real life. And um, I've built businesses. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how long because I'm, I'm uh, laughably old, <laughs> or, or sometimes feel that way. Uh, but my, I, I think what I want to share with you guys is that I've only been in this space for three months now, and I found my way into this through NFTs, into crypto, and then into DeFi. And um, I found Sanity's vids, uh, you know, videos kind of on, on the DeFi piece, really, and, and explaining things. And I was delighted I did because they were, there was no sales there and it was a lot more about explaining things. And as perfectly summed up in that brilliant intro, there's just some interesting things that you borrow from. And, um, you know, I, I, we talked previously about the concept of being well-read. And I think there's some lovely things that you refer to that will make a really interesting discussion. So... Essentially, um, I will be the, the interested listener. And as we get into this series of podcasts, um, I'll be gathering feedback on Twitter and Discord uh, to put questions uh, to Mr. Sanity and hopefully some challenging debate. Um, but yeah, that's, so that's, that's my background and that's the role I, I want to play within this. So just to kick things off and, and get our conversation going, that's, as I said, I've very honestly only been doing this for three months and I'm a, a noob, to use the correct term. <laughs> um, but 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 what about you, Mr. Sanity? How long have you been in the crypto space? Well, I, I would I would really like to thank you for being my co-host and being 
in the place of the listener uh, because for me it is you you are correct in saying that I am well read I guess um, but it is very difficult for me to know how to communicate everything that I see and so having a great conversationalist really just brings it out and not only helps me better communicate myself, but also feel more connected to the world. So I'd really like to thank you, first of all, for going on this journey with me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and no, no thanks necessary because the thing that I love to do in life is learn and there's so much learning opportunity here. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about some of the origins of a space that I've made some assumptions about, I think. So um, really, really keen and th thanks for the thanks. Cool. So going back to your question, I, it's complicated, like most of my, <laughs> my answers might be. Um, I have only been active in the crypto space for about six months. Uh, that is when I started making my first trades and started participating in projects only about three months ago. Uh, it was at the prompting of my wife who encouraged me to have a second look or actually third look. And the reason why I say a third look is because even though I've only been active for that long, I have been intimately tracking the space from the very beginning. So I knew about Bitcoin before Pizza Day when they used the first transaction. Um, I believe it was 10,000 Bitcoin for one pizza. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a lot of libertarian software programmer friends. So of course they kept me very up to date about every single thing going <laughs> on in the Bitcoin space at the time. And then a few years later, I heard about Ethereum before it had its ICO. I talked to the team a few times, uh, interested in building on top of it and really looked into making what would have been one of the first applications on Ethereum that I decided not to pursue for particular reasons that we can go into. So I have, I've really been a half in well, maybe that's not true, a 10% in, 90% out sort of relationship into crypto um, until the last six months. And there's a very particular reason for that, which is that I was waiting for the industry to get to a certain level of maturity that more aligned with who I am and what I feel I can bring to the world. So I was purposefully not engaging until now and okay. that's really what i would you know love to to unpack here you you talked about wanting to know more about the history and i and i think um you know i am not because i do not have a lot of firsthand experience i will not say that i will get everything a hundred percent right but I do have a lot of friends that have been in this space, which gives me a unique perspective. Okay, awesome. So, so where do we start? 
Well, I think where I would like to start is that my tagline is, I don't give a shit about crypto. And <laughs> what I mean by that when I say that is there is nothing special about crypto. Yeah. I, if I have any expertise in anything or any skill that I can hang my hat on, it is understanding how industries are created and how they evolve. And the reason why I've really specialized in this is because I feel that our society as a whole is going through a transition point unlike anything that that we have seen in you know not only decades but even potentially centuries i think the transition that we're going through is as large as the industrial revolution and will need to occur on much much faster time scales and so because of that i have spent my entire career attempting to understand how do societal shifts happen and how does it occur on a fractal level, meaning what changes in individuals, in their consciousness, what changes on an industry level, what changes on a societal wide paradigm level. And through that, I found myself participating in helping to create multiple new industries in the last 20 years in various ways. And I don't see anything, literally nothing that makes crypto stand out in a, in a, in a novel way. I do think it has novel potential. I think it could potentially lead to new ways of doing things but it's not anything inherent about crypto itself. And so understanding how crypto is relates to this process, I think is essential. Just one quick observation. I think a lot of people would have examined history in that sense through business study. I actually read business studies at university. So you know, take some particular companies, look at the trends and what they did and what they, and yet when you're describing it, you're looking at society and behavioral psychology and, and you're looking for much more of a macro level. I just wondered why you looked at the problem from that perspective. Well, I looked at the problem from that perspective because I, my guiding force in life is to try to figure out what is necessary and sufficient. Mm -hmm. And so I have studied the, from that business perspective that you just said, mm -hmm. but that business perspective comes in a very narrow pro post world war II perspective Yeah, that is incredibly unique to history. And I think is not particularly pertinent to the challenges that we face right now in the 21st century. So a lot of those studies, I think, are interesting. You can pick up various uh, learnings from that, but I don't think it is sufficient. Okay. And therefore, we, we, we begin more with 
with mindsets and observations of people rather than of specific companies. Exactly. Because when you look at that, you can, you know, you can read from the Greeks, you can read from mm. the, the ancient Chinese, you can read from any point in history, and you can see the resonance of humanity represented in each time period. The details yeah. are different, how they think is different, but the actual way that things unfold is is quite similar. And so that's okay. why I've taken that approach to to better understand what we what we are facing. That makes sense. We might need more podcasts than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so, so d give me the um, give me the segue from you know that kind of um, the people study, behavioral study, population study into um, my original question. Totally. So, what's interesting about crypto? is that it didn't actually start with Bitcoin. It started much earlier. And the, I mean, you, you could take it all the way back, obviously, to where it originally started in the, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, and it's um, how it factored into the war effort and the, the post-World War II um, flourishing. But where I'm going to start is I'm going to start more in the in the 90s, where it became a real utopian socialist, or not uh, not socialist, but a, a utopian libertarian idea yeah. that we could that privacy was the core issue and the core lever of power, and so. Like every single other disruptive industry or disruptive ideology, it started with this idea that there's only one or two things that if we could just nail that, then we would be able to have a flourishing utopian-like society. Mm -hmm. So this, this small group of people, for reasons, they decided that privacy was that one thing that if we could if we could uh, focus on cryptography as a way to secure our privacy then that would allow for free association it would allow for eventually overturning hierarchical structures and so no matter what's happening in crypto today how the systems are designed how the entire social sculpture of how we think about crypto, you can take it all the way back several decades to these original crypto anarchist cyberpunk types who you view this as a political force first and foremost. Hmm. Uh, you know what it's making me think? I, I'm I'm minting NFTs called cyberpunks and not knowing anything to do with that relation. I'm already <laughs> I already feel more genuine in thinking, ah, that, that's what that was getting at. That was a nod to so yeah, uh, fascinating. Please go on. Yeah, well, I think you know, history is something that is endlessly fascinating when it's done right. And, and but yeah, we have completely destroyed 
<laughs> how how it's uh, you know should be presented. And what's so interesting about it is that you see the echoes of the past in everything that we do today. And so even yeah. a little tiny thing like that, you know, I'd love, I'd love when I can tell people or even more so actually when I learn these little tidbits and then I can mm. see, oh, that's why connecting the dot here. Yeah. And so yeah. the, you know, where I think I want to go, go from here is Eventually, I, I do want to go back into the 90s and talk about what, what these, these cyberpunk sort of movement was about. But for this podcast, we're going to focus more on the modern crypto movement, which did start with Bitcoin. And what was so interesting about Bitcoin is that it was a very, very small technological tweak <laughs> that enabled revolutionary potential. And by that, what I mean is the crypto part is not what's interesting about Bitcoin and is not what is revolutionary about Bitcoin. That had already been worked out. What Bitcoin is, is Bitcoin is entirely about the consensus mechanism. Yes. And so that one little tweak of how do we have this consensus that, that works slightly better than the, than the consensus mechanisms that had been around for decades. The same crypto anarchist force of this community that had been waiting in order to actualize their dreams, they were like, we can finally do this. Because yeah. basically, I said, you know, I said they thought privacy was the issue. And then they realized people don't give a shit about privacy. <laughs> <laughs> and even though, even when people were using uh, encrypted technologies, it wasn't leading to the change in behavior that they expected. Hmm. So then they were like, you know what the, what the real thing is? The real thing is money. Money yeah. is going to be our, le our leverage point. It's going to be the one thing that can lead us to our utopian ideals. And so this is where literally the, these two things combined, it's, it's the privacy aspect and it is the money aspect. Having the quote unquote sovereign currency is the perfect encapsulation of this originally libertarian movement. And just to pick up on something that I think, you know, um, my, my knowledge in this area is is shallow and, that, and that's why this is so enjoyable for me. But, but what I do know about Bitcoin that I think is well known is that we don't know exactly who created it um, or if it was even one person. 
and and to, you know to this day there's some people have made uh, varying degrees of success in claiming that it was them but but the question i was going to ask on that basis was that realization you talked about of, of where the value or the application of of the tweak might be was that the creator or whoever that was or was, was this later when the when the creation was kind of made and not doing anything oh i love this question and I love this question because it ties into where change actually comes from. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, when did Bitcoin arise? Like, like what was the exact year <laughs> or what was going on in the world when Bitcoin was developed? This is not a rhetorical question. Is, is there <laughs> like, going to be a huge historical event that I should go, ah, well, it was. Is that what I'm, I feel like that's the test here. You're going to say, well, you're, you're old enough you to may know be. this. <laughs> you're, old, you're definitely old enough to have The First World War? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, okay, so let me just think of my time scale. It, was it, is it, um, is it the birth of the internet in terms of it being, not the birth of the internet, but is it, is it internet going mainstream? So I'm not talking the about the original um, the original crypto movement. I'm literally okay. talking about Bitcoin. Do you know when Bitcoin was invented? I'm gonna guess at like um, 2004. You would be incorrect. By how, by how much? And how embarrassing is this on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Please say 2003. <laughs> You're going the wrong way. It's Oh, wow. Okay, release. that's not embarrassing. I, I just looked it up, you know, so, so I can be embarrassed too. Its initial release was on January 9th, 2009. Okay. Okay. Not a million miles away. Not a million miles away. But so back to the question, what was happening in 2009? Yeah, what was happening in 2009? Wow. I can't think of a I can't think of a historically significant event that you're going to link to. Put me out of my misery. You you must be <laughs> you must have uh, suppressed this in your memory. <laughs> It was, it was, it, this was in the depths of the financial crisis. Okay. Okay. <laughs> where, where we literally, so that, so this is saying, I'm reading from Wikipedia right now. The word Bitcoin was defined in a white paper published on the 31st of October, 2008. So when this was published, yeah, we were literally not knowing whether the global economy would even be around <laughs> in in six months. Correct. So this is like layman collapsing period. Exactly. So People are going to be screaming at their speakers when I didn't answer that. They're going to be like, the financial crisis. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so exactly. It is when it is when it looked like we were staring into the abyss mm. that the that the central banks had failed us that the financial system had failed us, that governments had failed us. Yeah. And, and that is when it was 
there is the genesis of this. Now, I'm not sure when it was, um, you know, how long they had been working on it. Hmm. But I do have a suspicion that, like me, they had seen the financial crisis coming for several years and saw the magnitude of what it meant and even probably like me understood that the way that the world responded to the financial crisis would set in stone our politics and our economic structures for the foreseeable future and i and that that is a whole podcast on in on itself of my sure. my belief um of of that and my personal actions that i took from seeing this but what i will say is that this technology of bitcoin arose in a context of extreme fear, extreme uncertainty, saying here is a tool we can rally around and create a future that we have control in, that we believe in. And okay. so that is that is why I loved your question because most technologies and when I use tech, the word technology, I mean both the physical representation and also the social uh, interpretation or ideas. Most mm. technologies lie latent until there is some precipitating crisis. Sure, yeah. And so that is really where what Bitcoin comes from and it's grounded in and will always be grounded in the financial crisis. So to redeem myself a little bit, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think the parallel you're drawing is that, um, you know, almost a secret, um, factor of the financial crisis that only really came out and was understood later was financial services creating the most complex derivative products and, and, and buying and repackaging and reselling subprime debt to the point that no one even really knew ho who owed who what. And therefore, the concept of an irrefutable ledger conceptually and particularly technologically advanced version of that, that it becomes kind of feasible, that would be a good landscape to drop a, a product or an idea like that into. Exactly, 100%. Now I I will I will make a slight modification to your great point right there because that is a fantastic point that I hadn't even considered that succinctly. The the minor modification I will make is that all of this was foreseen. I was reading financial blogs that were talking about these derivatives and the counterparty risk for years before the financial crisis happened. And they, they were tracking it in real time. And so that was my initial exposure to, to finance and, and really uh, fits into my field of study of, of systems theory. Mm. 
Yeah. And, but your point about the hidden leverage, the hidden relationships is dead on, spot on. And so having this public ledger, being able to see how these things operate is both a technological reason for that, but like you just said, a, a key like philosophical thing <laughs> it gets mm. to the heart of like what, what stood at, at, as the trigger for the financial crisis. Almost as if they were solving for that problem to say, you know, how could we, because st- I think it's a natural human reaction to come at this with how on earth do we stop this happening again? And so even if it wasn't designed for that, as you'd, as you'd said, um, it was maybe laying dormant, th- that application, that demand signal would shout way louder for anyone who had a sense of how you could bring um, that solution to that problem. Exactly. And of course, because of that, it's created this tension, this tension that still exists today, right? So as I said, it was very much grounded in this crypto anarchist privacy movement. Mm -hmm. But you also have radical transparency and radical transparency itself is an anarchist value. And so how do you mix privacy (laughs) and transparency? And this is this is a a dichotomy that can never be fully reconciled. It is a dynamic tension. And you see that throughout the entire ecosystem today. Yeah, I'm, I'm smirking and I won't throw you off, but it's so interesting when put in those terms, when you fast forward the journey and I, w- I won't make you do that and start thinking about the way that privacy <laughs> and um, major technological corporations came back together, you know, not that long after that to create another interesting dynamic. Um, but sorry, no, I'm, it's just it's just the thought you threw in my mind was immediately, you know, the, the, the rise of Facebook and Web2, but that's probably going to come way later in the timeline. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, definitely circling back and talking about the Web1 versus Web2 interface and how how web three is so much of web one and what yeah what happened there um really want to get into that and in, into the future but like okay. you're right not not quite yet yeah yeah agree okay so what yeah where would you like to go from here like just this personally you know what are you getting from this conversation so far and what's arising so for you? So Bitcoin was not developed. So, so we're saying that Bitcoin found a, a better application because of the wider landscape of what was going on. And therefore, but but I guess the, the bit I was getting up just before was um, who picked that up then? Where, where was that picked that up to, for someone to say, you know, I imagine I'd found it and I was calling you and saying, oh, Sanity, I found this amazing thing. And here's, here's how I think we can use it. And here, how, how did it? make it how did it come to any kind of mainstream or recognition that there was some kind of um was it proposed as a business or an academic idea or how did it rear its head above the parapet well it it started 
again, like most uh, genuinely disruptive movements, mm -hmm. it started as a philosophy and a manifesto. So it is, it's Bitcoin put a stake in the ground. You know, Satoshi in the original white paper alludes to the reason why they invented it. Mm -hmm. But shortly after that, it was picked up by all of these techno libertarians. My, my social circle had many of these, uh, like I mentioned. So they were talking about it at the time. They, from in that community, they started putting down manifestos. They started saying, this is how society should be. So they were making what we call in philosophy, normative statements mm. of what should happen. And they're saying Bitcoin can be the infrastructural foundation for this new society of what it should be. Now, this was completely insane because <laughs> the technical limitations of Bitcoin, you know, are obviously so extreme that it cannot operate as societal infrastructure. But that wasn't the point. The point was that Bitcoin was a meta meme. It was a, it was a way of interpreting the entire world through a lens. And that lens attracted these highly educated, quite influential people that had these, these libertarian, anarchist, et cetera, perspectives, as well as the dreamers. Hmm. The people that, that aren't really that into technology per se, but are really into what is possible on a social and individual level, you know, a spiritual level of flourishing. Mm -hmm. And so these two groups combined and they really liked each other <laughs> and they really liked each other <laughs> because the, the dreamers, could are they're getting so excited right mm. <laughs> like the the technical people they they would constantly be dismissed and society would be like oh you're so skilled and and so credentialed why don't you go do something useful instead of this fake internet money thing right right <laughs> and and so they're their concerns and their dreams were dismissed, right? And marginalized. And so mm -hmm. they found an outlet into, you know, these alternative types that are about human flourishing. And they, that, that is the, the real point where like the stew came together and, uh, was able to start eventually attracting more people. So, so just to check a fundamental here, 
um, Bitcoin wasn't the first blockchain. It was the one where currency was added as a concept. And that's when it started to pick up pace and interest and, and potential deployment, right? That, that was the X factor. Um, I would probably say it was the first blockchain. Um, this is something that I could potentially uh, be incorrect about, but I certainly had never heard of the concept of blockchain before. But what I would say is it is not the first time that people had used cryptography, consensus, yeah. <laughs> sure. you know, distributed systems, all of those things. And the blockchain itself, the ledger itself, is a a well-known uh, construct Concept. Yeah. Um, yeah. that has you know has been around for decades. So what it did is it took all of these little pieces and it just said, oh, if you do the mining, if you do the hashing in this way, you can create a, a proof mm-hmm. that, that the order of the transactions is correct. And that was, that was the tiny little addition that unlocked the power of all of these other things that were quite mature already. How technically, how technical do we want to go here? Because in full transparency, there are elements of that I don't fully understand, but most of it I understand. How, how deep do we want to go? Well, how deep do you, do you feel that you want to go? <laughs> well, here's where I'm, that was a, that was a leading question, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> the, the reason I said that is that when I'm describing, you know, within my circle of friends and family, don't laugh at me. I'm the blockchain expert. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, that's how well it's understood by the masses, right? I, people keep telling me I'm early to something. I'm trying to figure out what it is, but I'm early somewhere. And, um, and, I, and when I'm describing what the blockchain is, I, I use similar terminology and description that you just used there. So I'll say, for example, we've been taking censuses in, in the UK, particularly in, in England, you know, for hundreds of years when there would be a record. And we've used those for things like taxes, um, of course, someone was going to gain, and that's why they needed the system. And th- you know, that's why the peasants revolted because they were starting to have an appreciation of there's this book, and we all owe this amount of money, and they keep a record of us, and we have this tracking. But when I'm explaining it to people, uh, I often use um, examples of where it could be useful, use cases, and say things like one of the ones that I always think is really obvious, and I don't know why. I mean, sh- I'm sure people are thinking about it, but um, I don't know why it's been not been the first thing, would be um, registers of property. Mm-hmm. Because in most countries I've ever been to, the, you know, there is a ledger, there has to be a ledger, there has to be a land registry, there has to be a, uh, who owns this property, what price did they pay for it? You know, th- that data is just an obvious ledger use case. So I understand all that and I understand how this can do that. But when you talk about the proof was in the right order, you know, and then and then I hear all these terms flying around in my head, like proof of work, and um, and th- and that's when it kind of loses me a little bit. I, I don't really know. I know that they mine the specific part of the blockchain, but, but is there any way to simplify what I'm murdering here? You know, is there any way to simplify to say from point A to point B, this is essentially how the blockchain is used, and maybe in that use case or one that's a better descriptor than that. Yeah, totally. So I will use a 
I will use a description that seems to work for people that is technical okay. enough, but not overly technical. Perfect. And that is the ultimate thing that you need in the transactions is to know who sent how much money to another person in the correct order because exactly like an accounting ledger the what we would call in programming the state of the system mm -hmm. is just the initial starting point plus all the different events added on top of it okay so exactly like in a in a double um accounting system you know you say i have this expense in match it against this other thing etc right and eventually you get a running balance correct mm -hmm. yeah so that's exactly the end state that you need now the interesting part is how you do this decentralized yeah and so this is where the the entire proof of whatever that that's where it comes in and all it comes down to is all the computers participating all the nodes they just vote to say yes this transaction a happened before transaction b or vice versa mm -hmm. and so when we talk about the word consensus the consensus is the voting process. The consensus is the majority? Well, so this is where the different systems will define it in different ways. Okay. Right? So in Bitcoin, they, they talk about how you need 51% of the network in order to break the consensus because it basically does use majority voting okay. right and so other other distributed systems can have different consensus amounts mm -hmm. for instance when you use gmail or similar cloud technologies they also use consensus it's not fully distributed in the same way of bitcoin but it is still consensus and they might have 75 percent consensus or something like that hmm. where the mind that comes in oh, go on no i just um it, it's just such a fascinating um comparison for me between 51 percent to me sounds like damn reasonable doubt <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know like if that was anything else like everyone in a room stands up. Who believes A was before B? If 49% of people don't agree, we've got a huge problem in this community. Yet for that system, I mean, I know it's theoretical and many of the transactions will never be 51%. But um, yeah, I'm just interested in kind of putting a human brain to a computer brain. So you've made an excellent point here because this is where the mining comes in. Okay. So it is not just asking all the computers naively saying, you know, what do you believe happened and what order do you believe happened? 
Mm-hmm. Because then you're right. And then it would be quite easy to, to just say whatever. Where the mining comes in is that due to a very clever use of a, of a data structure, uh, Satoshi basically showed that you can create basically a single number that represents all of the transactions within one block. Okay. And what the mining does is the mining is to find what that number is. And if there's any change to the, or so I will, I will say this point first, one input into that number is the current state of this, of the system. Mm -hmm. So basically if you try to change anything about the past, then it won't work. It will be easy to detect. And you can only say things about the current block that all of the transactions make sense together in 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 context kind of like a reverse alibi you've got to exactly. prove that you were there not that you weren't exactly and so what proof of work is and or proof of of anything right it is the algorithm to put all the little bits and pieces together that makes it very difficult to spoof not impossible, huh. but very <clears throat> difficult. Mm -hmm. And so there are more, there are newer consensus mechanisms that are more resilient even to tampering than the original Bitcoin consensus mechanism. Yeah. Because they, because it's even harder to like, get the little things to all make sense um if you try to if you try to change anything but ultimately going to your point about 51 percent, it's not asking for opinions yeah it's asking for observations that have to accord to a very specific narrow constraint of mathematical <laughs> proofs <laughs> And that's why it's called proof because yeah, because, because it's proving something and you wouldn't be able to prove it without those inputs. Exactly. And so, and so trying, trying to come up with something else is theoretically possible, but would take a long amount of computation that if you were a bad actor or had a bad system, um, people would notice if <laughs> they would yeah. notice before, before it propagated. And then they could say, Oh, I'm not going to believe what these, what this, uh, sub network is saying. And that opens up a whole a host of other issues of like, what do you do at that point? Um, but that's the, that's the idea behind this. To I'm totally fascinating. And I suddenly feel empowered that I, 
believe I understand it more than I ever have before. That's for sure. Because I, um, you know, um, one, I don't, it's really interesting how it's kind of a powerful thing, right? If, if in social circles, you talk about blockchain and you look confident enough to know what you're talking about, people immediately assume you're some kind of, you know, um, tech entrepreneur. <laughs> oh, you understand blockchain. Wow. Okay. You know, it, it, it probably, it probably, uh, it probably makes you look pretty cool. And, and I, and I think actually that the reality is that the vast, vast majority certainly couldn't even explain it to that level. So I quite like this is in a podcast format because I can listen to that back a few times till I absolutely, absolutely understand it. So, so coming back to zooming out again, and uh, that piece about somebody spotted the potential of this, where does that take us kind of on the story of discovery for society? Like where, where did, where did someone say, what was it? Okay, let's, let's see it. Now we think it works. Let's go try and buy a pizza with it. And then, and then we can prove this kind of to the rest of everyone that's watching. Or where did it manifest? So where it manifested is that the early Bitcoin community was extremely tight-knit and extremely small. And they basically were running their, their miners on their computers. And they knew it wasn't going to get anywhere unless they could have a realistic use case. So they they went out of their way to start buying things with it. And of course the first pizza that was bought, they did not give that that money directly to the pizza company, which would not have <laughs> taken it. Um it was actually a you know a a transaction where they where they sent the money to someone else that then ordered on their behalf. But the idea was that they needed to start designing ways of interacting with each other that were reflective of their normative philosophy of how people should be. Yeah. And so, yes, the transactions were part of that. But also part of that was, how do you talk to each other? How do you make decisions together? How do you tell stories? <laughs> and really getting around the same page there in the attempt to align with the overall cultural zeitgeist. Because remember, going back to what we recently were talking about, in this period where everyone was worried that the entire financial system was going to disappear, potentially leading to nation state collapse, mm -hmm. they were like, well, if we can propose this solution, then people will see that they should adopt it so we can avoid this fate again because the way that the governments responded did not fix any underlying issues. It just papered over them. And it's going to come a, a, you know, to even a greater head eventually. Yeah. And so that was really the message that they were communicating. And it's like, 
any sort of other major systemic issue like climate change is a great one where you're trying to communicate to people why should you care right now what utility mm. can you get out of it right now but we're doing this for the long term for to avoid some sort of catastrophe oh but you also want to do it for the long term for a positive reason for a more beautiful world not just out of fear and so that was that's what they were trying to to navigate and and piece that together and eventually it got to the point where enough people particularly young people who were displaced from the system didn't see any future in the system started buying into it and then they started saying oh eventually people will see that we're right i'm going to start buying a bunch of bitcoin now or start mining a bunch of bitcoin now in order to be positioned for when the rest of society finally comes around and then i will have power in that new society and so that's that's kind of the arc of of adoption there which is like ballsy as hell those <laughs> because it was like 99.9% likely that it just disappeared because it's such a you know specific and unheard of concept to challenge something like ledgers which is such a in the domain of the conservative and the bureaucratic that's where the ledger sits the ledger doesn't mm -hmm. sit in the in the kind of tech entrepreneur's head right or mm -hmm. this and then maybe this is a very modern lens examining this back but, but I, I wonder, therefore, on those two main groups you talked about at the beginning with kind of the, the tech programmers and the people who were able to bring it together and the dreamers and those seeing the art of the possible and how it could shape the future. At this point, when, when the adoption happened and people started to buy them, who was winning? What, what's your sense of the sway of power between, you know, the people who were looking to deploy it technically and think what the possibility would be and the dreamers who were looking for it to be a bigger thing? Yeah, well, that, that's a fascinating question. And I, I think the answer is neither. I don't, I don't, and I, I, in this question, I actually was not part of the community enough at this point to give a clear okay. answer on this. Yeah. But I think the better question is not the dreamers versus the tech people because they were very aligned and I think they're still very aligned. Mm -hmm. the, the original utopian. I think the better question is who is the next wave? Who is the, who is the, who are the people that, what we call Bitcoin maximalists now. Yeah. And then a new wave of technical people and dreamers who were saying, oh no, what your, your world is, what your world looks like built on Bitcoin, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work for these technical reasons. It's not gonna work for these social philosophical reasons. What we actually need to do is change, modify, evolve 
the the paradigm so it has a better fit and really that's that's more of where the uh the conflict arose i i believe and and by that you mean that's where um and we may be straying into chapter two (laughs) (laughs) but but that could be where the birth of other blockchains or, or or splinter cells or other parts of ideas that could be where some of those were born exactly so you know let's just let's just call that quickly which is ethereum right mm-hmm. so the if you look at the the dna of ethereum it is very much based on mutuality and more of a it's still very anarchist in some sense but it's much closer to to socialist anarcho-socialism than anarcho-capitalism that bitcoin community is populated by and i remember when ethereum was first being presented and they had their own utopian vision of how we could have these DAOs. And at that point, DAO meant literally an autonomous organization, meaning a line of code. Oh, okay. It did not mean what it means today, which is interesting, (laughs) which is a group of people, you know, interacting and having politics and in their relationships. It meant a group of people getting together and defining the shape of how they wanted to relate to each other and relate as an organization and then codifying that into a contract. Uh-huh. That that was the original meaning of DAO, which you can still see today, and particularly in older Ethereum projects, they still are pursuing that path. Was part of the reason that that group looked to define a DAO, looked to create the concept, that they were looking for additional functionality that would justify another blockchain or or a, or a fork of of Bitcoin? No, I wouldn't put it that way. I would I would put it much more philosophical, like I was I was just saying, and that is closer to to anarcho uh, socialism. Mm-hmm. It's it's this idea that you know most Bitcoin maximalists in, in, in the early days, most libertarians, they believe the market solves everything, right? So they believe the only form of interpersonal relation that you need on a societal wide level is the market. Everything is determined through prices and through market incentives. And so they would construct their system. The the fixation was completely on having a financial system that can't be corrupted, where you can't define things the, the way that you, you know, arbitrarily there's there's a single source of truth and everyone will interact with the market yeah 
Whereas the Ethereum perspective is, this is not true. This does not capture the the breadth of human endeavor and organizational ability. And so instead, what you want to do is you want to give people the power to define how they are going to relate. And it's still anarchist in the sense that it's still based on free association. It's still this idea that you shouldn't have governments defining how the rules of how we interact with each other. But it's a, it's a pluralistic perspective mm-hmm. instead of a universalist perspective that Bitcoin has. And really that that's the, the core differences in these philosophies and construction of how they how they approach everything and why to this day you will see Bitcoin maximalists be like everything in Ethereum is just a joke because it's just you could just do anything and it's just populated by scammers and blah blah blah. <laughs> the only thing that matters is store of value and ensuring a stable market. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so really that's where it comes from. Not, not a, uh, not just a, a looking for a, an application. Yeah. It's kind of the other way around. Exactly. The application. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm tempted to, uh, that feels like a really good cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel, and, and it's, it's fascinating because you and I weren't sure exactly where we go and how deep we go. And, and I feel like that's a really, really helpful, um, you know, I'm representing the the layman here. I'm representing, I hope, I hope a lot of our listeners, but I just wanted to say, you know, we, we will intend to pick up from here and to continue this next time. Um, but as I said at the beginning, we would love to hear, you know, your ideas on our, um, on our Twitters. Um, my Twitter is CPT R A N D. L-E-L-W-A. That's C-P-T-R-A-N-D-L-E-L-W-A. And what's your what's your Twitter handle, CryptoSanity? It is CryptoSanityMag. CryptoSanity is taken. Exactly. M-A-G. There you go. Short for magazine. Go. Because So Ah, okay. Okay. Then then be sure to, you know, message us or you can find us in the Invincible Finance Discord, something we'll be getting into. A lot more um, as we develop this series, and and um, and yeah, we'd love to hear your ideas about what you'd like to talk about, or what you'd like to hear me not know much about and ask Sanity to explain. <laughs> um, more than happy to do that. So, look, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope that was helpful, and um, look forward to hearing you or you hearing us next time. Thanks very much, and goodbye from me. Mm, thank you, and thank you for uh, being such a fantastic uh, hosting questioner. Thank you too. Look forward to the next one. That that's uh, that's a wrap for part one, guys. Thanks a lot. Sanity out. This is crypto sanity. Sanity.